الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين I would like to thank you all for coming this early morning on a Sunday and I hope inshallah you will stay awake till the end of the day because this course is, uh, has a lot of texts within this course is based on a book that is a summary of another book the original book was written by Al-Imam Abil Hassan Al-Khuzai. And Al-Imam Abil Hassan Al-Khuzai was alive around 700 Hijri and 800 Hijri. Abu Hassan Al-Khuzai was a minister. He was a scholar, but at the same, at the same time, he was kind of a prime minister for a dynasty in Tunisia called Bani Murrain or uh, uh, Lomarinids, Al-Murrainiyin, who were actually governing the whole of North Africa from Tunisia to Morocco. Abul Hassan al-Khuzai at his time, as is in every age, there are people who will come out and try to put doubts about the modern civilization that we live in. Or even though I dislike the word modern, but the civilization that we live in. And try to say that Islamic civilization has nothing to do with this and that we should go back to the very primitive forms of life. So Abu al-Hassan al-Khuzai, who had a, access to a huge library, decided to look into the books of hadith and the compilations about the description of the life at the time of the Prophet وسلم, and come up, came up with a huge book that responds to this claim, uh, where he explained in detail how the structure of the life at the time of the Prophet وسلم, how the society was organized. Years passed, and uh, Sayyid Abdul Hay ibn Abdul Kabir al Kittani, who uh, was born in uh, 1305 Hijri, which, is, which corresponds to 1888, and died in 1962, uh, which corresponds Hijri to 1382. Uh, Sayyid Abdul Hay al Kittani was a great scholar uh, from uh, the city of Fez, Fez in Morocco. They used to call him half of the dunya, the half of the world of his time. And he actually deserved that title because he was a man of, uh, the word photographic memory is quite small for, 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 a, for a man like that. But he, is, he was a man of immense knowledge when he did his Hajj journey from Morocco across Egypt. Uh, the, stu the, the scholars from Sham and from Egypt gathered in Cairo and uh, to, to meet him and to see him and to honor him and to listen to hadith from him and to get ijazah from him. So he was a, a prolific writer and, and half of, of the time. Sidi Abdul Hayy al-Kittani rahimahullah ta'ala took the book of Al-Khuzai which was written a few centuries before, at least six centuries before and he kind of summed it up, rearranged it and added to it. Unfortunately, the book of Sidi Abdul Hay, all the new prints of the book of Sidi Abdul Hay from the manuscript of Sidi Abdul Hay, are not greatly uh, served. Uh, this is one of them, and this is published by Dar al Qutub al Ilmiyah. This is like a, a, the print, the, one of the, print, uh, of the two prints that I had. Unfortunately, what Sidi Abdul Hay mentions at the beginning, he mentions 10 big chapters in the book, and the book only contains 9 chapters. So a whole section is, is missed. And obviously, because all of these are actually commercial prints, so it's not very great. But anyway, there is so much to say here. There is a recently a new print in two volumes published by Darus Salam Egypt. You differentiate between Darus Salam Egypt and Darus Salam Saudi Arabia because one of them has a specific tawajjuh, has a specific way of thinking, follows a specific way, and and its books are actually tainted by this tawajjuh. And the other is just like a normal a normal publisher. So Darus Salam Egypt has produced a book in two volumes, all the ten chapters. Sheikh Walid Musad, when I was in uh, the States recently, he gave me the copy because he, he has attended the, this course. Well, how, how did this come about? How did this course uh, essentially come about? Many years ago, I had a copy, I had a, my hand on a copy of the book, this copy. I would say possibly eight years ago or so. But as, as slow in reading as I am, I didn't even look at it. Uh, I knew the importance of the book, but I didn't. I, there was there was no time to look at it. 
And then recently, I, when we, we were planning a, a, a retreat in Trinidad and Tobago last April, uh, the brother who was organizing the retreat said, what would you like to teach? And we all, uh, something that I, I, I complain from all the time uh, here in the UK is, we have like a list of texts that are always taught over and over and over and over again. Like, is it Ayyuhal Walad, dear beloved son, or uh, the 40 Hadiths, or Bidayatul uh, Hidayah? It's like a list of books that people don't go out of. And unfortunately, most of these books are actually not ilmi books. They are kind of tasawwuf, da'wah type books. But the ilmi books that, that you get out and you have something that you can argue with, something that, that, that can fill your mentality as well, that's intellectually satisfying, there is, uh, there is not much out, out there. So I, I thought that instead of teaching seerah or shama'il, which people can actually go and learn somewhere else, I will uh, be teaching this book. It was a challenge, to be honest, with, uh, with time, uh, time limits and things like that. And the book was big. So I decided to start reading the book, and I would say I read it in about 10 days. I forced myself to read it in about 10 days. I was in Singapore, so I had, I had free time at night. And along with reading, I was summing it up. Because such this, this, this big size of a book that's like about seven, 650 pages, it is difficult to teach in a, in a day. So I summed it up in this notebook. Almost finished the whole notebook in the, in the, in the summary of the, of the book. And I did a bit of like research to kind of rearrange it as well, and then I put it in this presentation. And we taught it uh, in uh, in uh, Trinidad and Tobago. We didn't finish the whole presentation, and I'm not thinking I don't think that we'll finish the whole presentation today either. But uh, it will just give you an understanding of how the society of the Prophet ﷺ was structured, in a way that makes you aware of a different way of looking at the seerah. Always when we study seerah, we read. Or year one, year two, year three, year four. Or sometimes we just look at the events. This happened and this happened and this happened and this happened. It is as if the society is presented only in war terms. <laughs> like this, this is a society as if we're saying this society was continuously at war with Quraysh. We summarize, huh? we summarize the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ in his conflict with Quraysh. And his conflict with the tribes that were around Medina. How he delivered da'wah to this tribe. How he delivered da'wah to... We look at only the da'wah and the military activities of the society of the Prophet ﷺ. But what about the day-to-day -day life of people? People don't just live in, in, the, war, in the warfare. <laughs> They're not always out there fighting and, and, and defending and uh, arguing and uh, teaching. Well, there must be like, they buy and sell. They get married. They argue with each other. They have, uh, uh, they, they have disputes over land. <laughs> and they have to go to someone to help them. They have money. What, what monies did, you, did they use in exchange of their goods? Were they uh, using bartending? They, were they bartending with each other? Or were they a bit more advanced? What else other than being in the battlefield or teaching, or negotiating with the Jewish tribes of Medina, was the Prophet ﷺ doing? <laughs> what other than these things was the Prophet ﷺ doing? That's something that, unfortunately, we fail to see. And this course is about that. It's about the society of the Prophet ﷺ. This course argues at the very beginning, and this is the significance of this course, is at the time when Islam is unwillingly presented as barbaric, monstrous, very primitive, far from any sense of civilization, it is an obligation of the time. It's wajibul waqt. It's the duty of our time to read our authentic tradition because, unfortunately, we have two schools today. Mainly one of them is dominating the scene when it comes to relation between Islam and the West. That's called the modern school. And over the past couple of weeks in my research in the university, I have come across a lot of writings from the modernist school. That's pretty much the only school that is presenting, trying to present Islam. Modernism. And modernism, the danger of modernism is that it tries to look at the text 
through the lens of the context. Traditional school aims at looking at the context through the lens of the text. It does the complete opposite. Modernist school aims at taming the text, adapting the text, reshaping the text, trying to find an apologetic understanding of the text to make people accept the text. Well, the traditional school says, well, this is tradition. And you know, this is not something new to Islamic tradition. It's not something unique to Islamic tradition. Every religious tradition in the world will do the, does the same thing. It defends its texts. It defends its heritage. It defends its understanding. It stresses the importance of plurality in the sense of plurality, that there should be no central civilization that forces others to be like it. Unfortunately, the Western civilization, after the Industrial Revolution, has been so arrogant. It has thought that it is the center of the world and everyone else has to fit in. And that has been very dangerous because it's forcing others to change their own cultures and customs and norms to fit within one civilization. And if you don't fit in, you are clashing with. And that breeds into what many of the theories that we have today. So we need to look at the tradition with the eyes of the, on the current reality. We should not neglect the reality. Otherwise, we'll be, if we're oblivious to our reality, we'll be completely out of context. But we have to keep an eye on the reality and look deep to see where we were and where we are as Muslims today. In fact, we will realize through this, this, this course that we are far behind our ancestors. Muslims' biggest challenge today is they don't read. We don't read. We uh, argue. We watch. We don't have the stamina to sit and read and achieve and complete. This is something that's even frustrating at the level of, since most of you are Husna students, even frustrating at the level of uh, Husna, of course, people have subscribed and they paid quite a, ch a big chunk of money and then they, they disappear. Like pretty much I can, I can easily point out in, in some classes who has missed most, most, more than 50% of the class. If you miss more than 50% of a class, then what have you actually been doing? And don't tell me that you are sitting at home and you are listening. I myself force, I force myself to listen to something that is not available in, 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 in person, to listen to it, to sit and listen. I was trying to listen to Sheikh Hamza uh, explaining Matnan Ibn Ashir the other day, and I do it only in bed. Well, like half of my mind is out and half of my mind is in. And they say that when you listen to something, you only get 8% of it, 8% of a lecture. When you read, you get 30%. When you study and, and in person, you get uh, 75%. When you teach, you get 90%. <laughs> So how far are we actually from, from all of this? Or you just listen. And let alone listening with take notes. We don't take notes. Some people just come and sit and listen for the whole day and not a single note that they take. So absence of wisdom. So we don't read. We argue and behave irrationally. Absence of wisdom is the biggest calamity. And then uh, this absence is caused by neglecting tradition and authenticity try to kind of take our, ourselves away from the tradition. We ended up either blindly following or blindly rejecting others, like one of the two extremes. The balance in between is to take things wisely and to, to wisely make and to wisely undertake. Abdul Hayl Kittani, Rahmatullah says in his book, whoever joins day with night, this is a very interesting text. He says, whoever joins day with night in, by tedious effort, means whoever works day and night, and careful in-depth research and reading, we will come to realize that civilization and high levels of progress reached during the time of the Prophet ﷺ in that short span of how many years? Remember, 10 years. The Prophet ﷺ spent 10 years building the, what we would call the Muslim society in Medina. And out of these 10 years, he was fighting in this side, he was doing this, he was doing loads of things. But that amount of civilization he built in a span of 10 years ne could never be achieved by any other nation in 100 years. It was with knowledge, piety, and understanding. 
knowledge, piety, and understanding. These, if you look at knowledge and piety and understanding, we'll find that all of them are in decline in our community. Knowledge is in decline, piety is in decline, and understanding is also in decline. First of all, before we go into the content of that, let's talk about when we want to write, Sidi Abdul Hay says, if you want to introduce anything that was written on in the past, or any book, any traditional book, this is a fa'idah for you if you want to teach something or you want to write about something. You want to present an authentic content, content in a timely context, because as we said in the previous slide, we said that we need to look at authentic tradition and present it in, in a proper, timely way. So how do we do that? There are four areas that we should look at. If you come across any text and you want to present it in a way that makes a lot of sense to people, there are four areas that you have to look at to work on. Number one, the language. The language of the text. You should take the language, digest it, dilute it, and then choose easy and suitable language. <laughs> this, is the mo this is very, very important. One of the things that stand between us and the Torah and, and the tradition is the language it was written in suits people who wrote it. And unfortunately, there is a big barrier between us and tradition. That's why the key to anything, I argue, is language. You don't have language, you don't understand anything. If you, the key to the Quran is language. If you try to understand anything, take for example the ayat of wala, the ayat of loyalty. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, O you who believe, la yahuda wa nasara awliya. Don't take Jews and Christians as awliya. Well, this ayah is taken out of context completely to say you should not befriend Jews and Christians, isn't it? Well, but the Quran doesn't say Khalil is a friend, is a close friend, or Sadiq is a friend as well. But it says awliya. And wala in the Arabic context, in that context, is a completely different thing. In those days, people who did not have families, and people who were slaves, and then freed from the bondage of slavery, they continued to have a relation with the tribe or the master who freed them after they became free. Why? Because in a tribal society, you don't have a big family, you're, lo you're left naked. No one can defend you. So if you have no family, or you were a slave, or you had no family because you came from somewhere else and you don't have a big tribe in the area, you have to establish a relation with, an, with a tribe. You become what they call their halif. Halif is like their hilf. Hilf alliance is normally between tribes. But it could also be between individuals and tribes. So that's called wala. So the issue of wala requires that if that person is attacked, you fight with him, regardless. It requires that if he is in need, you help him. As much as when you are in need, he will help you. As much as if you are attacked, he will, attacked, he will help you. So it requires a form of commitment that brings two loyalties sometimes in contradiction. Now, many of these were Muslims. Many Muslims have, many of these people accepted Islam, and now they have the package of wala, and they have the package of Islam. They might come in collision with each other. So the Quran said, from now on, you are no, you are no more supposed to take that form of wala. Why? It is replacing the tribal wala with the religion, with the wala of the new community. Saying, now you have a community. وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ وَالْمُؤْمِنَاتِ بَعْضُهُمْ أَوْلِيَاءُ بَعْضُ they are the awliya of each other. Replacing the, that form of loyalty with a tribe, with a new concept of loyalty that is to a community. right? So it's not talking about friendship at all. But when someone looks at the word awliya and he doesn't understand where it's coming from, this is a type of disaster that we fall into. 
So language is the first thing. When you try to introduce something, the first thing that you should look, look at is how do you sum up uh, that language in, and, and represent it in a modern, in, in, a, in, a, in a kind of a, uh, a modern language. Secondly, one of the things that are uh, important in introducing authentic content in a timely context as well is the length. The length. Remember, I, I told you that the, uh, the, 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 the original book of Abu al-Hassan al-Khuzai was four volumes. And then Abdul Hayy al-Kitani's book in the print that I have is two volumes of this size. It's about a thousand pages. Well, even this is like a bit cramped, actually. This is, this is very cramped. But this, in order to be presented to you, has been summed up in something much smaller than, than this. So opting for summaries rather than lengthy accounts. Imam al-Bajuri, rahimahullah, a theologian, uh, who died in 1277, Hijri. Uh, he says, Lakin But from lengths, like writing at length, causes people to be exhausted. So summing, summing it up is a, is a necessity. Summing up these texts is a necessity. It's gone. Not necessarily, because when you sum up, you will be choosing for people what is... The, the ulama, when they write, they write a lot of things that I wouldn't say hashu. Hashu is like an extra, extra details. But things that might not be really applicable. For example, Imam al-Nawawi, rahimahullah, in his 40 hadiths, what does he say at the beginning? He says, وَقَدْ ذَكَرْتُهَا مَحْذُوفَةَ الْأَسَانِينَ I have mentioned them without the isnat, without the chains. So that people can memorize it. So what is your purpose? What is the purpose of your writing besides how you should write it? If you want people to focus on the texts and memorize them, you don't have to say to them, an, 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 an. Then you just give them the hadith and say, who is the narrator, for example? If you're teaching a child, you don't even have to mention the sahabi at all. Qala Rasulullah right away. So sometimes you have details that are there and it can actually distract people. We will find that there is a, lo a lot of discussions in this book that I have not included in my summary because these discussions are not very relevant to us today. Or they could be relevant if you want to read them outside the, 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 the day course or even on your own time and uh, as, I, as I would say, sleep on them. Some discussions need you to sleep on like something that you need to sleep on it you know some ideas you have to sleep on it over and over and over brew it <laughs> and then later on when you come and look at it like thinking about like I, I was shifting the title of my dissertation just like half of it and just thinking about what to write next to the life and thought of Abu Bakr Mashur what to write in the other half I have, been, I have been sleeping on it for like 10 days. I'm putting like 10, 15 options. Could it be this? Could it be this? Could it be this? Could it be this? And you have to read and like be all over the place trying to look at others who wrote about individuals. What have they wrote about them? How can you represent this idea? And then I'll, until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you an, an insight into things. The third thing is Details, and this is also relates to summary. When you write to people today, you can't just give without give give uh, content without detail at all. But when you choose the details, choose the most accepted and the preponderant opinions. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, giving the details of fiqhi opinions can cause so much disruption and so much trouble. In people's minds. Because what happens is people like takes, take, take part of something and then they leave the rest. Take for example, there was a, there was certain discussions in fiqh, for instance, certain discussions in fiqh, that caused so much trouble in a country like Egypt over the past few days. And this is very interesting. And excuse me for, 
for, for, for touching on this topic, but this is the only topic that is in my mind because I, I, I was reading about it yesterday. There was so much hua in the Egyptian parliament about can a husband have intimacy with his dead wife? And they were saying in the books of fiqh, it is there. Well, the ulama in the books of fiqh talked about that it is haram to do that. Right? It is haram to do that. That was the essential point. That it is haram, like with death, the relation of marriage is finished. But the discussion that they started is, what if a person does it? What if a person does it? There are always perversion anywhere, right? So when you deal with fiqh, you have to deal with the dirtiest scenarios in the society. You can't just sit in your ivory tower and say the society is clean and nice. No, the society, fiqh is like going to the gutter and cleaning. That's the reality of fiqh. The faqih has to ask very difficult questions in order to answer the, 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 the situation. So the discussion is, what if a person does it? And that's the husband. Does he have to do ghusl or not? Does the dead, do we have to repeat the ghusl for the dead one or not? And what if a different, a person other than the husband does it? Does he require had or not? Let, look at that discussion. Like, will we apply the punishment on them because they have committed zina or not? That's the discussion. So the discussion is not in permissibility or otherwise. It is on issues that are, that a case that is in front of you. Just like when the fuqaha talk about insist. Well, it's not, it's not to uh, acknowledge it or to allow it in any way. But what if a person does it? When the fuqaha talk about bestiality, they talk about what if a person does it? The fuqaha have to be forward thinking. They have to look at all scenarios that are there. So sometimes when you give an issue, instead of giving different opinions, you just give the preponderant opinion and present it to people. Why is that? Because you want to tell them, to give them the solution. If you tell an individual about all the available options in one issue, and this is a ammi, this is a lay person, he doesn't have the tools even of choosing. So what will happen? <laughs> they will be just like lost. You go to the pharmacy to buy medicine, and then the pharmacist says to you, well, what the doctor has actually given you contains such and such substance. This substance exists in this product, and this product, and this product, and this product. What about, like, which one of them is the best for me? Well, uh, this can do this, and this can do that, and this can... That might actually add to the confusion of the individual. Sometimes it is easy for you to say to someone, no, or yes. Yes and no answers actually can help people a lot. That's why a lot of people fall into Salafism. Why? It gives people black and white. Halal, haram, bid'ah, not. People want that. But you want to take them into sophisticated arguments of theologians or sophisticated arguments of fuqaha, well, they will not find that uh, amusing at all. So giving, choosing the most accepted and preponderant opinion. And finally, the scope. When we teach something or when we want to write something, we need to decide at the very beginning, what do we want to deliver? What are the objectives of our study? When we have an objective for our study, we will decide the scope of our study. I I'm not like all over the place. I'm talking from le left, right, and center. It sometimes annoys me when I listen to a speaker and he's all over the place. I say, what does he want to say in the, in the end? And I personally, when I teach or deliver even a khutbah or anything, I try to put anasr. I learned that from my father. Like there has to be anasr for everything. There has to be like components, items. One, two, three, four, five. And talk about one and two and three and four and five. With an ayah and hadith for each. Or some text supporting, supporting or arguing for each or arguing against each. And then some kalam. Some, some speech or some words. And at the end, it is easy for you to remind people of the five 
items or the five messages that we have taken from the khutbah or the speech or the lecture today. Now, when we mentioned, when we spoke about this, uh, te- this text at the beginning, we said that the prophetic society is a society that is representative of civilization. It's a very civilized society. Even though we are 1,500 years away from it, but it was very, uh, very civilized society. This is a claim, isn't it? This is a claim. We're making a big claim that it's a civilized society. Obviously, I'm not going to delve into the issue of civilization and civility because there is difference between both. Civilization is when you focus on building things. Civility is when you make people themselves civilized. So, for example, you might find someone uh, living in a very nice flat, but he's not civilized at all. <laughs> living in a, in, a, in a palace, but he's not civilized at all. His way of eating and his way of behaving and his way of dealing with things around him is very, very uncivilized. So it's not the, the place that you live in. So indications of civilization. Looking for a place. Where does the society of the Prophet ﷺ fit? Well, Sid Abdul Hayl Kittani says that there are four indications of civilization. When we skim and scan all civilizations from the time of Adam ﷺ till today, we can find that people call a civilization civilization. They call a community a civilization if one of four things have manifested through that. Not that we agree with that as Muslims, but this is what, what is out there. First, they can measure a civilization based on the buildings. So, for example, they say like it's a sign of how advanced they were. Nowadays, one of the very famous civilizations in the world is the ancient Egyptian civilization. Why? Because of the pyramids. Because of the temples. Because of their buildings. They were so advanced in their buildings. Yemen, for example. You, they, these people are famous for the first skyscrapers in the world. They built their structures from clay and mud. And it is a few stories. <laughs> like It's quite high. And they don't need all of these cement and steel and all of these modern things that we use today and these buildings have been standing for hundreds of years some uh, some castles in Aden in, in, in Aden in the south of Yemen and in other parts of, the, of, of, of Yemen have been even inhabited by uh, by the colonialists because of how fortified they were and they're just made of adobe and uh, and clay. So buildings, we, we t- today the preservation of buildings indicates that these people were very civilized. The second thing is literary, scientific, and philosophical achievements. It could be that the society does not have great buildings, but they have produced so much, uh, so much literary uh, heritage. So much philosophical, they were, they were arguing and they were disputing and they were talking about themes that are way ahead of their age. Like ancient Greeks, they were discussing things, what, why someone like Aristotle or Plato or Socrates are so eternal, if we can say, so eternal. Till today, people are talking about them. Why? Because they were talking about themes that were ahead of their time. They were people... Who it, they were icons of the greatness of the Greek civilization because it is a reflection of the minds. It's a reflection of the minds. Why do people look at the Western civilization today and say it's an advanced civilization? Because how the minds are thinking. What people are thinking about. They are thinking about how can they push the human society forward every single day. Well, regardless of the fact that it's only on the materialistic direction, but it's pushing the human society. In the other side of the world, there is no pushing, whether it's material or spiritual. At least there is a pushing here into the material side. Well, there is a decline into spirituality, but even Muslims who live here are far better in their spirituality than many people who live on the other side of the world. Why is that? Because of the fact that people are relaxed. 
you have you, your day is in your hand you don't have to run around your rizq around the clock to, to work like two jobs or three jobs every day and you have no time for dhikr or ibadah or remembering Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at least you can put your life into a system if you get into the tube or you get into the train or you get into your car there is a space for you possibly to sit or even to stand to read something that if you want to read the third sign of, uh, of manifestation of civilization is wealth how much wealth does that civilization have? Because it's a mirror of their mastery of industry and agriculture and trade. When a society has a lot of money, it means that their economy is strong. Their economy is strong because the strands into that economy, whether it's agriculture or trade or industry, are functioning. And it relates to their minds as well. And it relates to, it might manifest in their buildings as well. So the wealth of a society Remember that Persian and Roman empires, they had a lot. They had kunus. They had treasures. Well, it was kept within the hands of a few. But there was a lot of money. And finally, one of the ways to look at civilization, to judge a society as being civilized, is the legislation of that society. Who has heard of a man called, a, a king called Hammurabi? Has anyone heard of him? Yes, can you tell us about him, Hakan? Hammurabi was a king from the Sumerians in Iraq. And this man was one of the early kings in the world who wrote a law. His qawaneen, his laws, his codes of practice, codes of action in the society were written in Sumerian language on a like, big slate, stone. And it is, it is known to be one of like, the very early laws in the, in the world. They're celebrated because they are an early legislation. What is the biggest uh, celebration within the American society today? What do Americans feel pride? Yes, the Constitution. The American Constitution. Why? Because it establishes, it's a legislation. It establishes rights and responsibilities. It tells people, most of the fights that happen in any community or in any nation is about legislation. Like what is right and what is wrong. So legislation, it reflects the state of morality in a society. Have they appreciated morality or not? People who live in no limits, like with no limits and do's and don'ts, what do they call that? Law of the jungle. <laughs> this is the law of the jungle. Like there is jungle where the strong can can vie on the, 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 the weak and can eat the weak and can swallow the, you call that the law of the jungle see, see that if in a civilized situation in a civilized nation there has to be legislation that reflects people's morality equality justice manners in the society it reflects system was the system in place or not so were these humans more like humans or more like something else now when we look at these four the buildings the wealth legislation and literary and i would like you to keep these four in your mind throughout the t today and you will see that the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam has achieved the four of them by the way they may be achieved at different levels in different societies so if for example people used to live in tents and then you move them into the city and urban society then you have actually moved them. <laughs> if people had no law at all, people were looting and stealing and, and people were unsafe, and then you start pushing them, pushing them into an organized society that has got laws, and there were, you're establishing safety and peace, that is a form of legislation, that's an advancement. If people were living on looting and stealing, it means that... They didn't have to work. It means that their wealth was very... We're just coming from sources that are not established. But when you shift that and you start promoting industry in the society, promoting artifacts in the society, promoting professions in the society, promoting agriculture in the society, and that shows that the society is wealthy, then you have taken them to a different direction. 
And also, the discussions that are in the society when it is all about uh, what have people done yesterday after they had uh, a drink. This is how Meccans used to live. They used to drink and eat and go sleep with women. That was the, the, the simple day-to-day life. <laughs> Imru al-Qais, a famous poet and king of Jahiliya, he, uh, they said, he came to his kingdom and he was drunk when he was told that his father was killed. So he said, Al-Yawma Khamr, today let's drink, Wagadan Amr, and tomorrow let's think what are we going to do. Uh, today, for drinking again tomorrow, we sort out how are we going to revenge, how he's going to revenge for that, his father's assassination. So they, they, that their life was, was around them. If you look deeply into the, uh, into the, 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 the poets of Jahiliya, pre-Islamic poets, and look at their poetry, like what, did they, what, what was there? What did they used to talk about? It's mainly about very superficial things. They would always start by, either, by talking about their beloved, whether that beloved is real or unreal. And then they will move to the main purpose of the poet, of the poem, could be pride, or could be fighting, or could be anything. But after the Prophet ﷺ came, you look at the 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 agrad, uh, the objectives of the writing, it was completely shifted. They started developing a mentality that looks at uh, at at the importance of life and death and. And, and the purpose of, of this life and you, you can see that in the poetry of Hassan ibn Thabit you can see that in the poetry of Al-Khansa you can even compare some poets who lived in both stages before Islam and after Islam what they said after Islam and what they said before Islam so whoever studies the structure of the prophetic society well and his teachings will be affirmed that all manifestations of civilization have their origins and fountains in the society of the Prophet so now moving from that claim to reality, when we first of all try to look what, what, what are the essentials of Islam? What does Islam really want? Islam aims essentially to search for truth and prove and prove it and embrace it. So it is pushing people towards civilization by guiding their search. Establishing equality and fraternity. And establishing equality and fraternity leads to building a proper and strong legislation. Giving people their balanced freedom within the social context. So that requires building a social context, building a society. Respecting differences and diverse talents. And that will definitely aim at promoting literary achievements if you respect differences and diverse talents, if you respect talents in the society, you're promoting uh, literary achievements and cherishing the interests of others, calling upon everyone to live in a civilized manner. And if we very quickly look at the state of zira'a, agriculture, and sina'a, industry, and the sources of wealth at the time of the Prophet ﷺ, the society of the Prophet ﷺ, we realize that Arabia, before the Prophet ﷺ, is mainly a desert, isn't it? There were these scattered oases in different parts of Arabia that were known to be rich soil, and people used to live mainly on growing date trees, and possibly a few other things. So agriculture was essentially the main thing. But in the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ society, his attention was on promoting agriculture even more. So it was in the center of his attention, ﷺ, but he encouraged industry as well. And he actually encouraged adoption of any beneficial knowledge, even from non-Muslim societies. We will see very soon how he sent people to go and get training to build certain things and to make certain things before they came back and did it. He sent a few Sahaba to go and learn how to make catapults <laughs> they went for training to be trained on how to make catapults and they came back he sent some sahaba to learn some artifacts and some professions and 
came back. He divided jobs and posts, and this is very, very important. If you want to build a civilized society, the first thing that you have to do is to divide the roles. Not everyone can do everything. You have to divide the roles. Like if you look at the society around us today, if you want to qualify as a nurse, you have to take a certain course. If you want to qualify as a doctor, you have to take a certain course. If you want to qualify as a, as a taxi driver, <laughs> you have to study for very long. So that saves people. Have you ever been with a taxi, a, a black cab, and told him, I want to go to a certain place, and he had to look for it? Has that ever happened to you? Hmm? Why? Because they know London. They memorize. Huh? They memorize it. They memorize it. Yes, four year yeah. yeah. Three, four, three you years see? But you go to a, an Arab country, <laughs> get into a cab, and ask the person, can you take me to that place? Uh, yes, every, he will keep asking, every hundred, every hundred meters, he will stop, can, can you please let me know how can I get to that place? I almost missed a flight in, 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 uh, in Sharjah, because of the taxi driver. And he was going to a place that was in, we puffed by the place at least 10 times. I said at least another four times so that we have two rounds of tawar. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes you just make more money. Yes, he actually, he, he, took, he took a lot of money on the day. Yeah. So, why is that? Because you have defined the role of a person and the job description. If you want to be a tax driver, if you want to be a, 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 a traffic ward, you have to. To, to, to know that the job and what does it entail. The Prophet ﷺ divided the jobs and the posts and he looked at each and everyone's talent. He established equal access to them. He didn't say so-and-so have to go in that, in that way. No, he gave all the tribes in the Medinian society equal access to the jobs. Anyone who wants to have to become... For example, when the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina, jewelry... Jewelers were only was something that is only withheld in Banu Qaynuqa, a Jewish tribe. The Prophet ﷺ expanded that, and we will see that some of the Sahaba went, to in, went into this job. We benefit from that today in, for example, Muslims today, they go on only into specific jobs. Muslims should widen their spectrum and go into every single job. So he, وسلم, he gave equal access and then he appreciated talents as well. You need to intermingle with people and interact with people to know what are their talents. Sometimes a person spends all his life doing something that he is not qualified for. And he doesn't know. He tries. Something that we will come across later on. There is a, a beautiful text from the Prophet that whoever tries to do business in a specific business and he fails three times, he should never go back to that business. Never. Like if you try to do business, then you fail. Try to do business, you fail. Try to do business, you fail. Don't go back to business. You're not a business person. <laughs> go and get a job. <laughs> or you try to do something, learn something, and you fail, and then you fail, and then you fail. Don't go back to it. Why? You are trying in an area that is not for you. He arranged military defense, and this is something that we will also look at. At the same time, he commanded the preservation of health. And that's obviously a sign of any, any civilized society. One of the things that differentiate between societies that are civilized and societies that are not civilized today is the level of health, access to public health, access to public health services. A lot of people would come to Europe seeking medication. They come here for treatment. Why? Can't they get that treatment in their countries? No, it's Either, either very expensive, that's completely unaffordable, or even that unaffordable service is not as good in quality as it is here. So the Prophet ﷺ remembered that people in Arabia, there was a high level of mortality. In Medina, the level of mortality has gone extremely down, declined completely. And we will see what procedures did the Prophet ﷺ take. In fact, you know what we would call medical quarantine. It was practiced during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ. There is a famous hadith where he says, ﷺ, whoever 
happens to be in a place and the red uh, the, the black death or the ta'un or the plague comes upon people don't leave it and if you're outside don't go into it that's that's a, a concept a concept of medical quarantine promotion of medicine while commanding spiritual and moral well-being like nowadays in western societies yes there is promotion of medicine well that's even doubtful <laughs> Is even doubtful because human beings are being used as, as like, experimental uh, objects for uh, for for new medicines, and commanding spiritual and moral well-being while encouraging exploration and innovation. The Prophet ﷺ established a comprehensive administrative and financial system, and we will also see see that he introduced bookkeeping. <laughs> The Prophet ﷺ had someone who observed his own nafaqa. Bilal and a few others, they were appointed as the munfiq. The munfiq is someone who keeps track of what the Prophet ﷺ spends on his own family. Why is that? To maintain transparency. If anyone comes out and says, well, how much have you been spending Someone is keeping a book of how much the Prophet spent on his family. Because that was even it was public money. And part part of it was his own wealth, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And at the same time, brothers and sisters, because someone in a public post who has a job of running a society does not have the time when his family says we need uh, some tomato from the supermarket. We need this. He he gets out of of these important things and he goes to do these things so you have someone who takes care of these uh, issues he وسلم, appointed specific people in administration he introduced big bookkeeping and computing I don't mean by computing here uh, computer but what we call ihsa ihsa means estimation I mean by estimation here not estimation, like computing is, 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 a, is a closer word, which is to keep lists of people who do certain things. For example, there was a list of people who volunteer in the army. <laughs> so that after the, a battle, they know who's dead and who's not. And so that their families are looked after financially because the husbands or brothers are actually in the service of the country. And so that no one would get into the army unless they are of age. <laughs> they have reached a certain age. So under age were not allowed into the army. As for trade, the Prophet ﷺ, we know that he traded himself. But he also organized trade. He did not neglect the importance of laws as means of protecting society from aggression against lives and properties and dignity. And he had a financial law in place. He had a, uh, um, uh, he had, uh, he had a criminal law, penal law in place. And also on foreign relations, the Prophet ﷺ called for freedom. Called for freedom to deliver views. So he sent messengers and messages. And he set up principles of treaties and relations at times of peace and war. He, he initiated such communications. And he also highlighted the rights of foreign citizens... I minorities living within the Muslim society in Medina and introduced ambassadorship and representation and that's something was not known in Arabia before him Arabs didn't have ambassadors representing them people would be just like going to trade in the Roman Empire in Byzantine Empire and the Persian Empire without any form of representation but there was this is so and so is the ambassador of the Prophet to the Persian king and nowadays we know in international law now, if an ambassador is killed of a country, that's like a declaring war on that country. You can kill the ambassador and the, the diplomatic corps representing a specific country. The Prophet ﷺ declared the whole war against the Byzantine Empire when they killed one of his messengers. Now, if, if, if you were to read this book alone, you'll be lost because the book is like, it's, it's all over the place. But I tried looking into the book from back to front and front to back to rearrange the book and look at the society. So I would say that, as we said, the, the book talks about the roles in the society, the image of the society of the Prophet. 
So I suggested that the roles in the society of the Prophet ﷺ take essentially three shapes. We have what we would call state jobs. These are the jobs that are run by the government, like the central government. You know, when we say today someone works for the government, so state jobs, these were mainly running the country. You can't let the country run by private sector. Well, you can give contract to private sector, but it, is, it has to be mainly in the hands of the government. Why? Because the government represents the people. And private sector doesn't represent anyone. The government requires people's satisfaction to be able to win another round of uh, elections. But private sector <laughs> is just after interest. If I lose this contract, I might not have that opportunity again. So we have the state jobs. That's mainly for running the country. And then we have the state supervised jobs. Some jobs that were service jobs had to be supervised by the state to confirm the correct delivery and the high standards. And then we had the common crafts that did not have to be registered with the state. For example, someone opening a barber shop, well, they have to have a license. They have to be subject to a form of uh, inspection to make sure that they are observing the laws of public health. But they don't have to be in the, in the, in the uh, ministry of barbers. There is nothing uh, as such. Or carpenters. These are service jobs that are common, common crafts. Now, when we look at the state jobs, we can divide them into different sectors. So we, we have what we would call al-khilafa wal-wizara, the caliphate and the ministry. That's basically the caliphate and the prime ministry. The Khalifa and the Prime Minister. And we will see that the word Khalifa, by the way, is different from the word Sultan. It's different from the word King. And it's different from the word President. So the Caliphate and the Ministry. And then we have the Department of what we would call the Religious Affairs. Who is in charge of different religious affairs? Not just Imams, not just Mu'adhids, but people who were in charge of the Masajid. People who were charge, in charge of the, I mean, cleaning the masjid. People who were in charge of even making sure that there is no noise in the masjid. There were, uh, there were some people who were appointed as noise controller. They control, they make sure that there is no noise between the salah. The people are respecting the fact that the masjid is, is clear. And we have individuals who were Ramadan imams. Just like today. We had people who were judges. And then we have the scribes and the correspondents, which we would call uh, the 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 wazaratul uh, kitab, the wazara of of writing, and that actually has a lot underneath it. It has what we would call the scribes uh, who are specialized in army. So they are they write the names of the soldiers of the army. They write the salaries of the army. They write the uh, the, the, the manifestos that will be read to the soldiers before they go out to the battlefield. We had what we would call the, the, the financial writings. And we had uh, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs correspondents who would write the, the, the messages of the Prophet ﷺ to people outside. Who would write the messages of the Prophet ﷺ to his governors, to the people whom he appointed he would send people with messages to monarchs and royalties, and he would send messages from Medina as a central authority to different tribes who are now led by people who are representing the Prophet So who would carry these messages? And analyzing the language of these messages is a big task. There was also what we would call the governors and the uh, the the judiciary that is basically the qada uh, the qada that's uh, that's very very interesting area because we're talking about executive authority that's governors individuals who were appointed by the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam to govern certain areas 
during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ, there was divisions of the Arabian Peninsula. عامل النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم على البحرين عامل النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم على اليمن عامل النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم على كذا عامل the word عامل عامل in Arabic means to work to do something but عامل means the representative the executive representative so what is the job of that عامل he will be there to judge to govern executively but he is not there to, for example to replace the tribal leaders but he is there to make sure that everything runs according to what the central authority wants. That's the amil. For example, he sent Ali ibn Abi Talib, and he sent Mu'adh ibn Jabal, and he sent Abu Musa al-Ash'ari, the three of them, as Ummal, in different places. And then you have the judiciary. So he would send a amil, and he would send what? A qadi. Remember that these tribes could not judge between themselves because there is... Conflict of interest. If you are the leader of Hudayl and you live right next to a tribe of Kalb, for example, then you can't actually be judged between Hudayl and Kalb. So you need a third party coming from the central authority in Medina. So there were the Quda. And with the Quda, with the judges, the judiciary system, the judiciary system, we will study who can be the judge, what was the place of the judge, like would the judge sit in the street and judge between people, or there was something called Darul Qada. The house of, of uh, the, the court, the court of judgment, or what we would call today, going to the court. You go to the court, Darul Qada. And what were the qualities of the judge? And what, what, what were the adjacent jobs that are attached to judgment? So police, shurta. I was in the time of the Prophet ﷺ. Prison. There was prisoning. There was prisons during the lifetime of the Prophet ﷺ. And it's very interesting that we will see that there was prison for men and there was prison for women. There was Sijnun Nisa, like prison for women. And what were the prisoners doing? Because also that's very, very important in a society, in our society today. You are a criminal, you go to the prison, you become super criminal. And you come out, you have actually learned more and more about criminality. <laughs> you, you come out to just to, you have, you have that kind of a networking inside. To know how to expand your activity. At the time of the Prophet ﷺ, imprisoning people was for a purpose. To train them to do something beneficial. So we'll, we'll, we'll need to know, what were they actually doing inside? <laughs> was it just like city? And military. As I said, we always talk about the military. Military, we'll talk about, in the military, we'll talk about uh, military maneuvers, activities, uh, wars. Weapons. What weapons did the Prophet ﷺ use? Where did he get these weapons from? Strategies. Did the Prophet ﷺ, what? How would he? How would he confirm his uh, authority in a place? Like if you if you if you send an army, how would you say that my sovereignty is up to this point? They used to. They used a. Uh, they had a. They had. They had an. Uh, to do, they, they did a specific activity to show that here is our sovereignty. Nowadays, it's mainly by flags. When you put your flag on a point, that means this point belongs to that country. But at the time, the Prophet al-Masajid. They will just get some rocks and put them in a square and say, this is a masjid, and they pray. Whatever they pray, that means this area belongs to Prophet ﷺ, it's under his sovereignty. Regardless of whether the people are Muslims or not, by the way. There could be non-Muslims still living there. And we will also talk about the financial, the finances. And in the finances, we will talk about two types of things. First, what we will call fiscal collections. Jibayat, collecting money. Jibaya, like, and that also indicates that there was so much wealth in the society. If you're sending people around to collect money from here and to collect money from there and to get money, the revenues, taxes, then you need, you mean you need a society that's producing so that the tax does not become a load on people and they don't feel heavy with it and then they commit a revolution. <laughs> so there were fiscal collections and these people, there has to be supervision on them because they can't just take the money and put it in their, in their pocket. We all know the famous hadith of Ibn al-Latbiyah, who went 
to collect the money from a tribe and then he came back to the Prophet and he said here is your money this is the money I have collected for you and these were gifts these, this money was given to me as a gift and the Prophet got very angry he said why do you do we send someone to do a public po- in a public post to do something for us and then he comes back and he says this is for, for you and this is for me why don't you sit in your mom's house and wait for people to, give, to see if they're going to give you gifts or not what we would call today disallowing gifts to people in public posts. If anyone is in public post, is in a public position, you are a public servant, there is nothing that is called gift, that is called bribery. It's a hidden bribery. It's a, it's a sugar-coated bribery. It's a gift. Well, wait until that person comes out of that job and see if you, if you will be given that gift or not. So fiscal collections were uh, important jobs. And then part and parcel of, of, of running the finances of any country as well is currency. Were they bartending? Well, bartending was, was in the society. But that was not the, the common thing in the society. In fact, the society used currency. Prophet ﷺ had dinar and dirham. They were talking about dinar and dirham. And when we talk about dinar and dirham, they were talking about minted dinar and dirham. It's not just pieces of huh? pieces of, uh, of, of gold and pieces of silver. They were talking about minted. You know what minted is? Minted coins. Where? Where were they minted? They were minted in Persian and Roman Empire. So they were using the Byzantine coins. And the Prophet but remember one important thing, that these uh, dinar and dirhams, they had weight. Even though they, they, they were minted, but they had weight. So their value came from their weight, and that's why the Prophet said, if you find a dinar that is damaged, like nowadays if you give a, the old pound, there's so much controversy about the old pound, whether it's accepted or not accepted. Huh? But if you find a dinar that has been Someone has eaten part of it or cut part of it or something like that. It's not accepted. The Prophet said, like, that's not to be circulated anymore. Why? Its weight has been damaged. So, currencies and measurements. Today, we establish a lot of importance for measurements in trade, in buying and selling, and so on and so forth. Uh, we will also, as I said, we'll be talking about the state-supervised jobs, and uh, the common crafts. Do you want a break for five minutes? Okay, we'll give you a break for five minutes, inshallah, and then we, we come back to go to our second session.